It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Matea reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Canada Land supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Canada Land shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes, like a behind-the-scenes tour of the federal budget lockup, more of Boris Johnson's trip to Canada, and of course, more of us yapping about what's hot in politics right now. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canada Land supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to canadaland.com slash join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. This episode is brought to you by CanadaLand's founding sponsor, FreshBooks, the invoicing and accounting solution that's built for owners and their clients. FreshBook users save up to 46 hours a month on admin tasks. They also get paid 18 days faster on average. Try FreshBooks free for 30 days, no credit card required. Go to freshbooks.com slash backbench, enter backbench in the how did you hear about us section. Support for this podcast comes from Dispatch Coffee. Dispatch ships monthly deliveries of high quality, responsibly traded and fairly priced coffee beans to homes across the country. Listeners are getting an amazing deal right now. Go to dispatchcoffee.ca and use promo code CanadaLand50 at checkout for 50% off your first subscription. Again, that's dispatchcoffee.ca and use the promo code CanadaLand50 to get 50% off your first subscription. Sunny ways, my friends. Sunny ways. The Prime Minister, who appeared to be hiding a bagel in his desk. And I uh, dressed up in an Aladdin costume. I heard her say a word that I know is distinctly unparliamentary. The word was F-A-R-T. Let's just say this is a little bit awkward. Drinking uh, water bottles out of uh, water out of uh, when we have water bottles uh, out of a plastic. uh, Sorry. 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 And I'm really sorry. Hello, I'm Fatma Sayed, and this is The Backbench, a podcast about Canadian politics and Trudeau scandals as installments of The Godfather. Today on the show, we'll be talking about friendship, as defined by the Ethics Commissioner in the ongoing fallout of the WE scandal. And the Government of Canada weighs in on a court case over Enbridge's Line 5 pipeline in Michigan? Joining me this week is Jessica Sandhu, South Park scholar, senior consultant at Crestview Strategies, and co-founder of Boz News. What's up? Hey, friend. We also have future seer, Lena Maniffy, producer and co-founder of Ricochet Media. Hi, Lena. Hi, happy to be here. 
And last but certainly not least, Stuart Thompson, the backbench's reality check and the editor-in-chief of The Hub. Hey, Stuart. Hey. Okay, let's get into it. So let's talk about one of my favorite nerdy political topics of all time. Accountability. A few days ago, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau dodged his third violation of federal conflict of interest law, this time in the matter of the We Charity Affair. According to Trudeau, the latest report from Canada's Ethics Commissioner Mario Dion confirmed what he had been saying from the beginning. While our Prime Minister may have been cleared from crossing a line, the Ethics Commissioner did reveal a cozy insider relationship between the Kielbergers and former Finance Minister Bill Morneau, who stepped down last August. According to the report, for Craig Kielberger, Morneau and his wife were simply Bill and Nancy. Kielberger had Morneau's private email address. When he and his wife found out that they were expecting a baby in 2017, he told Morneau and his wife that they were one of the first to know. If that doesn't sound like a beautiful, complicated, and unethical friendship for the finance minister, I don't know what does. A quick summary of how we got here, because honestly, even I forgot. There was a $900 million initiative called the Canada Student Service Grant, which was meant to help post-secondary students who had lost summer jobs because of COVID-19. The federal finance department suggested in the spring of 2020 that a third party should help with administrating this initiative. That third party? We Charity. Despite the fact that both Trudeau and Morneau had links with We Charity, neither of them recused themselves from the decision-making process. Trudeau and his family had made multiple appearances at We events. His brother and mother have been paid for We activities. And Morneau's wife and daughter went on a We trip to Kenya while Mark Kielberger endorsed his daughter's book in the front cover as well. Morneau was found in contravention of three of the conflict of interest laws because he was found to be actual friends with the Kielbergers. Trudeau was let off the hook because he only seemed to be friends. I don't know the difference. Jessgren, please help. Look at the fact that you know Trudeau has had eight We Day uh, events that he's been participated at. Uh, Sophie Trudeau has uh, has been an honorary ambassador for We and hosted her own We podcast and attended eight We Day events. And that Trudeau's mother and brother participated in pay activities for We, and that he still got away with it uh, is telling. But look, Trudeau and the Kielbergers are not friends. They're more just like super duper close acquaintances that accidentally bump into each other over and over again, totally by coincidence and to great mutual benefit. And I'm glad that the backbencher allows for that type of nuance and thoughtful thinking when speaking about this issue. It's worth just remembering like what we were doing in April of last year, I remember speaking to some friends in government, just some of the most insane times of their life. They were working 12, sometimes 16 hour days. The decisions they were making were just unbelievable. So there is a part of me that wants to give some slack to government decisions made in this time, because I actually know from talking to friends and other people, real friends, <laughs> about what was going on in government, um, it was a crazy, crazy time. So. You know, if I'm ranking the Trudeau ethics scandals, it's a little bit like The Godfather. Number one is pretty good. Like, I really enjoy it. 
Number two is clearly the best one, Wilson Raybould. That was huge. Number three, you know, I could take it or leave it. I would not really notice if it didn't exist. It doesn't tell me anything that I didn't already know about Justin Trudeau. I'm surprised at the poor judgment of Bill Morneau, but maybe I shouldn't be considering some of the other controversies he was wrapped up in. But there isn't a lot to this that most voters didn't already know. Okay, I've, I have to admit, I've only watched one Godfather. Oh, you're in for a treat. But if I remember correctly, even the Godfather offered accountability in his way, didn't he? <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure we want to go down that road, but... <laughs> no, but that's the point. Okay, so Bill Morneau has stepped down. Trudeau has now gone through three of these reports, and he's still safe. Lena, what is the point of these reports then, if, you know, there's nothing that's going to happen afterwards? Before I answer your, your question, Fatima, I was going to say, I, I feel like this just points to a larger sort of issue within our, our, our political system and in our country as a whole. We we do have a lot of nepotism. We are kind of a small pond. I mean, I don't know how much we agree to it. We're a really large landmass, but a really small pond. And sometimes it feels like Iceland, like, you know, the people down the street and it's hard to get away from them. But really, it shows that elitist circles and friends sort of run in those circles and that there's so much interconnection and ties. I think the third report is maybe just trying to kind of get this done with and over and defining uh, friendships. I mean, I think it's a good thing to do, but obviously Trudeau is going to be protected in any, in any possible way by people around him. And, you know, Morneau, yeah, his friendship is uh, really obvious. I mean, do you give uh, <laughs> gifts to people and to their children if you don't really know them or don't really like them? I think it's it, it shows that there there has to be some accountability. And if they're designed to, to define friendship, I'm actually looking forward to that. Well, some people just have a big heart, right? And why, why are we punishing <laughs> someone for having a big heart? Uh, and I also want to correct another point, because there's been a lot of falsehoods spread here already in such a short amount of time. Morneau didn't step down because of the scandal. It's, it's because he was running for the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. Uh, and he was, he was doing a great service uh, to Canada. There's just so much nobility here. <laughs> the value of these reports, I think, is interesting because like, I especially remember this during the Harper years where you know these little scandals would happen and the idea that was kind of around Ottawa and journalistic and sort of like pundit circles was, is this finally the thing that brings down Harper? And that was always the question. And then when the Mike Duffy thing happened, there was RCMP involved and everybody was thinking, this is this finally the thing? But it's not really how it usually happens. What normally happens is a sense builds up about a government. We just sort of have an idea of what their pros and their cons are. And the electorate I think generally comes to this idea of, you know, I, th I think the Harper government was seen as sort of uncaring and nasty at times. And the way they dealt with that scandal compounded that. It wasn't the thing that brought them down. But by the time 2015 came around, people had just built up this sense. And then Justin Trudeau provided sort of the opposite of that. That is the danger here for Trudeau, which is that the scandals that he has had are all of a similar nature. And it's an impression of him that we all already had. It could come to the point where people start to feel like this guy's just not going to stop and is starting to interfere with the governance of the country. So I, I think the trouble for Trudeau is that these things just keep piling up. I think NDP leader and conservative leaders agree with you, Stuart, because Jagmeet Singh said that he hopes Canadians look at this as another example of the liberals on a continued pattern of behavior. That's a quote. 
where they help those at the very top and it hurts people. Conservative leader Erin O'Toole said that accountability mechanisms are broken. Lena, are we reading too much into these reports or, or should we be seeing this, as, as Stuart's saying, as a pattern of behavior that just indicates how chaotic our government functions sometimes? I would say looking to the South, I think <laughs> this scandal, you know, is, is quite is quite tiny. But to hold our own people in account and sort of take this report and retroactively apply what friendship is if you did it to all other sort of leaderships and all other parties in the past, I I do think that there would be uh, similarities in here and, and the way things operate with these close circles. On the issue of accountability, the one true accountability mechanism we actually have are elections. As shitty as that actually is, what we actually need to have and what the actual true crime is that this, this government has has done was pushing aside and breaking the promise on proportional representation, which would make it easier to hold people accountable in our uh, electoral system. The first past the post makes it very difficult to even hold people electable in, in elections. But that really is the only tool we have. So if there's a way that Trudeau government has sidestepped accountability as well as breaking their promise made back in 2015, that that would be the last election out of first past the post, uh, which I guess, at, you know, all things considered was a prudent move not not to do. Yeah, paid off for them, right? <laughs> Never underestimate the Trudeaus. <laughs> and their friends. Well, it, it, here's my other issue. Um, you have this these long decision where, where a lot is cited uh, as like precedent, uh, but no one made mention like not once uh, was uh, the precedent of I'm not your friend, buddy uh, argument and thesis by by South Park. And no differentiation was made between buddy, <laughs> pal, guy and friend when trying to decipher what is friendship in Canada, which I think is another missed opportunity in all of this. Well, I mean, Dion tried to his credit. He did try. He tried to define friendships now and tell us exactly what government leaders shouldn't do. I think the question in my mind is, does this a, end the whole we saga and Trudeau's role in it, and B, will it change anything? Will this cause a cultural shift in, in government? Will they be more careful? Um, after three reports, I'm doubtful, but what do you all think? Quickly, I think um, Morneau, the issue here was that he had some high-profile constituents. And one of the things you're supposed to do as a minister is separate yourself from the member of parliament um, who has a constituency. And I think that that was mostly what happened here is... He got caught between those two worlds. I don't think there was anything malicious here. He just wasn't thinking. It was just bad judgment. Wait, so are you saying that he was responding to the Kielbergers as his constituents? Yeah, I think that he built a relationship with them based on the fact that they were sort of a star constituent. And the other side of this is that, you know, the big benefit from the WE organization is that for a politician, they will put you in front of a crowd of uh, young people. And every single politician in the world wants to look like, you know, they command this army of enthusiastic young people. That looks great for them. And then obviously, you know, it goes both ways, right? Like Morneau gets something and we get something. And then uh, you run into trouble when it starts to interfere with government business. And that's what happened here. Of course, you're blaming the young people. Like, uh, <laughs> as the only young person on the panel today, I feel insulted. No, I'm joking. <laughs> it may be something we have to relook at uh, as Canadian institutions. Like, why are we relying on these like huge uh, nonprofit organizations and this nonprofit industrial complex to kind of come into our country and sort of, you know, do the work that we should be doing and um, internally and locally? So, uh, if that comes up as a conversation, then I'm into having that one. Mm -hmm. Just looking at kind of what went down, 
I think one of the cool perks of being in politics and holding these positions of power is you get to meet really interesting people. And I think kind of to Stuart's point, there was a bit of that star power that, you know, the We Charity is is legitimate. It's large, it's credible. It, it does all this amazing work. I think maybe even now when they look back at it, they really truly don't see how they would have done it differently. This was an opportunity to work with a, you know, a great organization to do cool stuff. And then it wasn't only until like, you know, things hit the fan uh, that they realized, yeah, maybe we overreached here. Uh, but there, there was a certain sense, even all the way through the hearings, even in the responses that we were given to uh, for, for, the, for the purpose of this report, that they never really felt like, you know, this was something that was, again, malicious or something that they meant to do wrong. Uh, and I don't know if you can correct for that or, or future governments can correct for that. Like those mistakes are going to happen. But you just got to think three, four times before you get sucked into the hype. Support for this podcast comes from Dispatch Coffee. Dispatch delivers a monthly subscription to high-quality, responsibly traded, and fairly priced coffee beans to doorsteps across Canada. We're all spending more time at home. There's never been a better time to invest in your home coffee setup. Dispatch makes this easier than ever to do. Dispatch is your one-stop shop for high-quality beans, coffee brewing gear, and free brewing tips from their team of expert baristas. Access all of this at a fair price. Shipping is free across Canada. Subscriptions are charged monthly and you can skip, cancel, or modify your order at any time. Brew like a barista at home in no time. Canadaland listeners are getting an amazing deal right now. Go to dispatchcoffee.ca and use promo code CANADALAND50 at checkout for 50% off your first subscription. Again, that's dispatchcoffee.ca and use promo code CANADALAND50 at checkout to get 50% off your first subscription. Madam Speaker, I, I have a point of order. What's your point of order, Jessica? So as we kind of see the light at the end of the tunnel on this whole COVID thing. We do? Uh, and vaccin- <laughs> well, the vaccinations are coming through. Come on, let's be a little positive here. Let's be a little positive here. <laughs> and, you know, I, I think the provinces across Canada uh, and the federal government have got their fair share of, of shit thrown at them. Uh, you know, keeping to the theme of this podcast and using words like that. <laughs> the folks that have kind of gone through this without much scrutiny are uh, regional health agencies. And uh, this goes for, uh, you know, from Fraser uh, in, in BC all the way to Peel region here in Ontario and elsewhere. And we've seen from the very beginning how regional health agencies, which, which have a lot of the burden in kind of connecting with communities, fail to do what we call inclusive decision making and working with community stakeholders at the grassroots level in planning and preparation and not just in execution. Uh, and I think if there's one lesson we learn from uh, responding to pandemics like this one is we need to ensure that the diverse and marginalized communities uh, are all brought, not well, brought to the table or the table brought to them uh, and, and made part of that decision. Uh, decision making. Uh, and we've we've kind of seen failures in that all throughout. And we've seen successes as well. And I hope we learn from those successes and double down for the next time. You're going to ruin our reputation with this very serious point of order. I'm shit posting the rest <laughs> of the show. Come on, let me have one moment to be serious. Madam <laughs> <laughs> Speaker, I have a point of order. What's your point of order, Stuart? Does anyone feel bad for Jason Kenney right now? In what way? <laughs> I think he's probably got the hardest, crappiest job in Canadian politics, maybe in the Western world in politics. I think in general, it's harder to be a conservative 
premier or leader during the pandemic because just the nature of the conservative coalition is that you're going to have a bunch of libertarian types who just are not temperamentally suited to being told what to do. Alberta itself is an extremely libertarian province. Like there just is a, a libertarian sense, like a streak running through the province. The rural areas are just a really interesting mix of like populist, libertarian, conservative types. And then you have more sort of conventional country club conservatives around Calgary and in the suburbs. Jason Kenney has to balance that, and it's going terribly. And he understands the problem. It's just almost impossible to lead the province of Alberta from a right-of-center position and hold on to power. And especially during a pandemic, that is just like tenfold. So I'm just curious, does anyone have any sympathy? Uh, <laughs> listeners, feel free to tweet at me. <laughs> Well, that's also not a point of order, but now I I didn't think I'd be waking up on a Monday morning when we record the show wondering if I should feel sorry for Jason Kenney. So <laughs> that's more sympathy for a politician and food for thought. Not a point of order, though. Madam Speaker, could uh, I make a point of order, please? What's your point of order, Lena? Well, it's kind of serious, but I would really like to have some more nuanced and accurate Canadian media coverage for you know, the killing of Palestinians and what's happening in Israel-Palestine today. So it would be great if, like, headlines could be less vague, as if a Gaza building just fell down by itself. People could name the thing, the object, the subject, and have an action verb to what happened to the Gaza building, which is, you know, Israeli bomb actually uh, put it down and, and in, um, in violent acts. So, I don't know, nuance and coverage and equal coverage is... Uh, kind of important to me. That's a very legitimate piece of media criticism, but also not a point of order. This episode is brought to you by CanadaLand's founding sponsor, FreshBooks, the invoicing and accounting solution that's built for owners and their clients. If you're a freelancer or small business owner, you know how much time gets eaten up by admin tasks. FreshBooks users save up to 46 hours a month on stuff like building and following up on invoices. They also get paid 18 days faster on average and increase their return on investment by 11 times. FreshBooks is also a crowd favorite. With an easy-to-navigate dashboard, over 3,000 business owners have rated it an average of 4.5 out of 5 stars on GetApp. Switch to FreshBooks today and join over 24 million people who have used it and love it. It's super easy to get up and running, and with award-winning support, you're never alone. Try FreshBooks free for 30 days, no credit card required. Go to freshbooks.com backbench, enter backbench in the how did you hear about us section. Canada is fighting over yet another pipeline. This time, the fight's happening in a courtroom in Michigan. And once again, it's proving that we're all still super dependent on fossil fuels. We know that it is a matter of energy security for Canadians and for Americans. Uh, this is why we have uh, pushed strongly for uh, the mediation process between Enbridge and uh, the, uh, the uh, state government in Michigan to continue. Last week, Michigan Democratic Governor Gretchen Whitmer revoked a 1953 agreement that allowed Calgary-based Enbridge to build and run Line 5, a pipeline between Lake Michigan and Lake Huron. Line 5 moves 540,000 barrels of product, including crude oil and natural gas, from Western Canada through the U.S. and into Sarnia, Ontario. 
Governor Whitmer said Line 5 is endangering the Straits of Mackinac. It's posing the risk of destroying the environment. She called the pipeline a ticking time bomb that could create a catastrophic oil spill. And she ordered Enbridge to close the line last Wednesday and threatened to seize their profits if they didn't. Enbridge is obviously mad and refuses to comply with Whitmer's legal order. The company said it's safe and that it's working on improvements. In court, Enbridge argued this was a federal issue and not up to the state of Michigan. The court ordered them to find a resolution through mediation. That meeting is today, Tuesday, May 18th, the day this show comes out, so maybe we can help them. Here's the important part. The Canadian government, the one that was elected for its climate platform, is standing with Enbridge. The government filled an amicus brief, which is basically a court filing by a third party that wants to offer information to help a judge make their decision. Canada's brief said that shutting down the pipeline would cause massive and potentially permanent disruption to Canada's energy industry and that it would hurt our relationship with the United States. Fun fact, Line 5 delivers half of the crude oil used in Ontario and 66% of what gets consumed in Quebec. The potential impacts of this entire situation has been described a lot of ways. An energy crisis, an environmental disaster, political chaos. Which one should we be worried about the most? Stuart? Well, I, I think this is a really interesting case study because the, the different thing here is that this is an active line. We've had some controversies over, you know, for example, the Trans Mountain expansion. Trans Mountain already exists, but the expansion was going to be a new line next to it. And we were arguing about whether or not it be, should be constructed. This is something that's already, you know, heating the homes of senior citizens in Quebec. So I would be surprised if this gets shut down. Um, it, it would strike me as probably a bad thing if one state one governor could make that decision for everybody who lives in Quebec and Ontario. And then, you know, when you read the comments from Gretchen Whitmer about whether or not this line will keep going, if it does keep going, she wants Enbridge to, her word, disgorge, um, a word I would prefer not to read, <laughs> but she uses it all the time. She wants all of en Enbridge's profits from this line. So it does give you the sense of a shakedown, but, you know, this is interstate infrastructure. This is going between countries. We have treaties that tend to dictate that these things should not be shut down by a single state. So I would be surprised if it gets shut down. But on top of that, I'm really curious what you guys all think about this. Um, the broader strategy from environmentalists of going after existing lines and going after the supply side in general. If you talked to me five years ago, I would have said, you should be more concerned about what people are doing. You should perhaps encourage people to drive less or buy a home that doesn't require driving or live in more dense housing. Because if you shut down a pipeline, the people will still want whatever that pipeline was carrying and it'll probably come from somewhere else. That was my view five years ago. I, I think the what's happened in that time has created a very different political environment. The environment is that maybe a politician like Justin Trudeau, who probably has some sense of moderation in him because he wants to get elected in a majority government, wouldn't want to go too hard on environmental issues. And it also creates this opening for politicians like Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan to do something pretty drastic to pander to environmentalist groups. That tends to be the point when you've really made it as an interest group, when politicians are going to do things, big dramatic gestures that 
that don't really have much impact to curry favor with you. And, you know, labor groups in Michigan are losing it over this. She's a Democratic governor who is happy to alienate labor groups and probably, you know, moderate suburban voters um, that typically she would be going for to make this big gesture on the environment. So it's kind of a new paradigm and it's interesting. I, I think it's probably working better than I ever would have expected. Lena, do you agree with Stuart? Do you think um, we need line five and we're heading into some interesting territory uh, politically? I think we don't need a pipeline from 1953 that's sort of providing to Michigan and Ohio. Right now, it's really interesting because Michigan is trying to transfer over to clean energy. And although they didn't take the 100% clean energy promise, they're going towards 15%, which is a huge start for a state that's been against it for a long time. So I think that our our government would probably want to start looking at maybe exporting clean energy resources. I mean, it's, call me, you know, future seeing, but it, it's really important that we kind of look at the divestment of fossil fuels at this point. If our partner in the U.S. is starting to go towards, like many states have taken the 100% clean energy challenge, why would you start looking at that? And considering the close placement and geography, and I don't think it's going to affect the relationship between Canada and the U.S. very much. We've been through this before. We've been through the software timber crisis, and and we just need to start thinking about our relationships in a, in a better way and what's future-proofing. Jessica, can we talk politics for a second? Whitmer is up for re-election in 2022. Canada might be heading into election. Trudeau has banked on climate. Alberta is Albertaing over this. Um, what are you seeing in your crystal ball when it comes to this pipeline? The interesting thing to me is, is the fight now between the NDP and the Green Party. Uh, and the Green Party has focused entirely on the NDP and, and, and attacking uh, government positioning, even though like Jagmeet Singh's positioning is all that, like it isn't that different than, you know, the Trudeau Liberals and the Aaron O'Toole Conservatives. Um, but, you know, to an earlier point that was made, Jagmeet Singh looks at this and says to himself, well, I, I have, I do have a Labour constituency that I also have to talk to and speak for. Oh, yes, we are absolutely an environmental, uh, a pro-environment party. We believe in, in protecting our planet, protecting the environment. We absolutely believe we need to fight to reduce our emissions and create good jobs. Uh, but the Line 5 is, is, a, is a, a current project with, that needs to be replaced and it's, uh, it provides resources that are essential for heating homes and for, for transport at this time. Tons and tons of construction jobs that are going to go with it for the new tunnel that they want to construct to, well, sources say, to protect the environment. Now, the Green Party, for once, now has an ability to wedge itself against the NDP uh, and finally clear in people's mind that they are, in, in fact, a viable alternative to the NDP when it comes to green policy. Uh, and, and I think that's interesting because, you know, the Green Party has done well, relatively speaking, considering they're coming from essentially nothing. There's always the threat that will chip away from uh, Jagmeet Singh's-led NDP uh, in, in the next election, uh, which can be tight. Like, we still don't know how this is actually going to play out, even though it's all trending towards a, a Trudeau majority. Uh, but uh, that, for me, is the interesting curveball in all of this, because it only takes a few percentage points to make the NDP not so competitive in a lot of spaces. Yeah, and you can imagine that nothing warms liberal hearts more than the Greens and the NDP <laughs> picking a fight with each other. <laughs> Just something I think that's worth noting here. Um, I think sometimes we overestimate this, but I covered in 2015, the NDP government in Alberta came out with a climate action plan. And it's a really good read. It's a short read, but it kind of lays out the global situation and the national situation and the provincial situation in an interesting way. And I think a lot of people haven't totally clocked that part of the plan that the NDP in Alberta laid out was that 
we would be massively replacing coal plants uh, and other fossil fuels with natural gas. And that was kind of seen as sort of the lower emissions um, way to solve this problem without, we just don't have the renewables um, in that short amount of time to fill that gap. And if you read the plan, one of the things that they mention is that to get under two degrees, the, the Paris goals of two degrees of warming, um, you can still have something like $20 trillion in fossil fuel investment um, between then, 2015, and 2040, um, which accounted for substantial growth and growth in the oil sands, um, just not unfettered growth, which is kind of what's been happening in the world since then. So I, I think that's worth looking at, that if we are going to be relying on national gra natural gas, um, pipelines like this are going to be necessary and um, trans-border pipelines are going to be necessary. And if you were to shut down Line 5 tomorrow, bringing out the renewable capacity um, would take some time. Probably what we would have to do in the meantime is we'd be transporting by rail and we'd be transporting by truck. And right now, if you think about the apples-to-apples -apples comparison of spills there, twice as likely on rail, 10 times as likely by truck. Um, so environmentally, it isn't an easy question to answer here. It's not just something that we can flip the switch on a pipeline um, and then everything becomes sort of roses and rainbows and happiness. Um, we really do need to figure out a solution to get from that intermediary period of what do we replace all these fossil fuels with. And there is, I think, a light at the end of the tunnel here, um, but it's a slow process and it probably does involve pipelines and maybe even new pipelines. Well, I think this is why we're seeing opposition from everywhere, right? Like, we can't decide which cost to bear. Do we, you know, bear the political cost of fighting this? Do we bear the environmental cost of shutting it down? Or frankly, do we, even if we leave the pipeline, there's a cost, right? Like a 2017 report by the National Wildlife Federation revealed that Line 5 had spilled 1.1 million gallons of oil in 29 incidents since 1968. This report was obtained through a freedom of information request, and it showed that many of the incidents were related to construction mishaps and others were caused by defects in the pipe itself. The, the report has cited Enbridge's bad environmental record in Michigan um, with the major 2010 spill in the Kalamazoo River. This is why we're seeing everyone from indigenous communities to environmentalists to politicians just not come to a consensus on what to do other than to oppose it somehow. Lena, how does Line 5 play in this bigger picture of what can we do to save the environment? Well, we have to start looking at older infrastructures. Yes, there's there's like a hundred pipelines below the ground that we have going across um, North American continent. I really believe that the Great Lakes are some of the most sacred and important ecosystems in all of Canada. It's not something that you can just sacrifice and everybody can get away with it. You know, a lot of companies look at sort of the, the cost benefit and usually the ind indigenous people are overall are not considered in that cost benefit when it affects their waterways and their life. But these Great Lakes actually affect everybody. And we already know the ecosystem has been damaged in that area from other types of chemical plants and, you know, the chemical valley. So um, it, it, it's going to affect all peoples. It's the, the majority of Canada is located in this area. So... It, it's at the utmost importance to make sure that it actually gets fixed and if not, you know, shut down. What is the likelihood of companies, like really big companies, going in and doing an appropriate job to fix these pipelines? Like we look at BP, we look at all the spills. 
they cut corners, they cut costs all the time when these things sort of erode and um, become defunct. So is it worth it? I don't know. I, I agree with Stuart that I think that there is a shift in the conversation this time around. Where, but I, I still don't see a path forward where Enbridge comes to the table, politicians come to the table, environmentalists, indigenous communities all come to the table and figure out what is actually the best course of action moving forward. Jessica, help us. So a, a lot of folks who have been watching this, especially from the more business side of the, the community, because uh, corporations are people too, okay? <laughs> you heard it here first. They're people. A, a lot of them have <laughs> been saying that what's what we're seeing, what we're witnessing is actually a political, uh, quote-unquote, uh, brinkmanship. Uh, and that uh, if we were to look at this as some sort of like negotiation that's going on right now and posturing uh, and anchoring the the argument and the debate at a certain level so it's easier to get concessions out of it, um, it makes a little bit more sense as to what Michigan is up to. Uh, because if, if you talk to the federal government, and this kind of goes to an earlier question around, uh, you know, what this hurt relationships between uh, the U.S. and Canada. Um, the the Canadian government essentially said the 1977 Canada U.S. Treaty on on pipelines uh, will ensure that you know nothing's gonna nothing's gonna happen as as Michigan is saying it is, which I didn't even know existed, which is a treaty signed by the U.S. and Canada in 1977, which guarantees that pipelines can move fuels between the two countries. But I think Michigan taking the route it has is is essentially to force the conversation that you kind of asked here. Uh, and force people uh, to sit down and actually come up with something here because no one wants to go through this. Like Enbridge doesn't want to go through this either. Uh, and the courts are always unpredictable. You rather mediate things and hammer it out and, and come to some sort of agreement. Quite frankly, that's what I'm looking for. I, I, and, I, and I'm really interested in what this mediation brings out and, and how all those voices are taken into account. Uh, and and what, what will Enbridge be doing? Because this is probably what's going to happen. What will Enbridge do to, to kind of innovate and change the way uh, this pipeline construction looks like, or this update of this tunnel, or the future operation of Line 5. Uh, because to Stuart's point, it it is, I, I guess, arguably a legacy pipeline. So it's not necessarily the same argument we've been having on other ones uh, over the last, you know, who knows now, what, five, ten years. But it, so it is a bit different than what we've seen in the past. One thing you guys should definitely, if you get a chance, read the amicus brief filed by Canada, because one of the things they point out, it, it's like we're talking about treaty obligations because it's not a it's not a total non sequitur, but they do point out that it was a Canadian general at NORAD who scrambled jets on 9-11 <laughs> to protect the U.S., which is like grandmother levels of guilt <laughs> in this amicus brief. Um, but yeah, I, I think that's right. I think it's, it is it uh, is about diplomacy, too, and it is about Michigan, I think, is, is driving a hard bargain here, and these might be negotiating ploys. Well, it's not a bad idea to remind people of the good deeds you've done. That's the whole point of good deeds. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're bringing this back to friendship, aren't we? This is our this is our, our friendship card. <laughs> friends always remind other friends all the great things they've done for one another. Yes, strategically. Like, that's the foundation yes. of friendship. I do that with my friends every day. <laughs> so we have a mechanism to actually allow a pipeline like this to exist. The question, of course, is... Should we maybe be putting our efforts elsewhere? Um, I think everyone on the backbench has brought this up, but is it finally time to start implementing mechanism to incentivize a green energy sector? Like, can the government do anything to help Enbridge move beyond Line 5? You know, another backbencher, Murad Hamadi, did a piece just last week about how um, federal bodies can incentivize clean tech in the health sector. Is that something we can do for pipeline companies? Well, I think um, 
one of the ways that you know a policy has worked and gotten into the water supply is that, um, you know, for example, in Alberta, the NDP government brought in this auction system for renewables. And basically what they did was they said, what did Ontario do here? We're going to do the opposite of that. It works pretty well at stopping the kind of crazy overruns that we saw in Ontario. Um, and then when Jason Kenney's uh, UCP government came into power, they trashed a lot of what the NDP did, um, but they kept this going. Uh, and I think that's a sign that there are some mechanisms we can use. Um, this was basically what was replacing the coal plants. Um, but how do you get renewables to fire up at a level that they start to replace the like the huge amount of capacity that a coal plant has? It's working pretty well. Um, I do think that we have mechanisms to do this, and I think even if you're a small government person, you can you can see where the role would be here um, because there are market failures on this. So it makes a lot of sense, and I think that the history does show us that there is a way to do it. I think that there's a lot of places that are far more ahead in Canada. I've I've looked at sort of the, the states and, as I said, like the clean renewables that they're doing and the incentives that they're giving. It's just that this infrastructure we're used to in other countries sort of becoming much quicker and faster at changes. I think Canada's a bit slow. We like to do things methodically. We like to like talk to all of our friends and parties first, make sure everything's okay. I just think that we're, we're used to doing really, really slow political shifts and changes, um, considering how small and, and nimble we could be. So. Yeah, we're not going to get moving on renewables until the wee boys sign off on it, and it might take a few months. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, let's adjourn. That's the Backbench. Me and my friends will be back in two weeks. You can write us at backbench at canadaland.com or find us on Twitter at backbenchcast. If you like what you hear, please follow or subscribe to us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Rating us would be awesome too. I'm Fatma Sayed and you can find me on Twitter at Fatma B. Sayed. Where can people find you, Stuart? Um, I would recommend you go to thehub.ca. Got a few pieces on there. Just generally, don't find me on Twitter. Just, just stay off Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> Good life lesson there. <laughs> Jaskaran, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter. Uh, Jaskaran Sandhu underscore. And Lena, where are you? I'm kind of on and off Twitter these days. It's it's kind of changing, but it's at Lena Menifee. And also you can take a look at ricochet.media and what I've written before. And this episode was produced by Tiffany Lamb with additional production by Tristan Capacchione. Our executive producer is Kevin Sexton. Theme music is by Nathan Burley. Thanks for listening.